Okay, we are in Epiphany now. Monday was actually Epiphany. Sunday was what's known in the calendar as Twelfth Night, and Monday was Epiphany. Epiphany is the time in the church calendar when we recount stories of people who realize that Jesus is the Christ. Some of them come to a sudden realization of this truth. Some of the epiphanies, stories we read, are more gradual. And the word epiphany comes from the Greek, a Greek word meaning to reveal. So in this season, we explore the question of, How do people come to realize that Jesus is someone special? How is Christ's Christness revealed to people? And we recount their stories, and I love the stories of Epiphany. The first one, which was actually last week's lectionary, but we weren't here last week to hear it, is the account of the, we think, Zoroastrian mystics and astrologers to whom we now refer as wise men. You can go back and read the story about how the wise men followed a star on a very long journey from some eastern territory. Maybe it was China, maybe it was India, who knows? Until the star stops, hovering above the place where they realize that the important person who they're following and whom they believe to be a new and revolutionary king is staying. They tell King Herod, they say, we have observed his star and have come to pay him homage. And you'll remember that throughout Advent, we sang the lyrics, day spring from on high be near, day star in my heart appear. And that day star is a reference to the realization of Christ's Christness, metaphorically, and to the star that the sages followed, which we too follow still. So then this week and the next, we have the story of John the Baptist's epiphany, when the day star dawns on John. He's ready, he's prepared his whole life, and then he's the village of baptizing the Christ in the Jordan River. I'll read you the little passage. It's our gospel lectionary for today. It's short. It says, this is from Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And that's why this week in the calendar is referred to as baptism of the Lord because this is the epiphany that happens for John the Baptist. We'll hear other stories later in epiphany. We'll, we'll, um, we'll hear of other people who have this similar dawning or revelation of the Christness of Christ. We get the disciples who are fishing and they have a sudden epiphany and they drop their nets to follow him. And we'll get to some of my favorites, um, which are Anna and Simeon. Uh, who, like John the Baptist, have their whole lives in the temple for the Messiah, the revelation of the Messiah, and they get to have their own epiphany. They get to hold Christ come human as a baby, and they get to to speak prophetic words uh, over him in the temple. So reflecting on these epiphany stories 
can help us to prepare our own hearts for the day star rising in our hearts. They can galvanize us for a new understanding. So maybe we understood the truth of Christ once at one level, but we are drawn deeper into the mystery and new understanding dawning on us at various times in our lives. So we thought it would be cool, we as in myself and Aurelia and Matthew, Uh, to share some of our own stories of epiphany in this new sermon series, which is very simply titled, A Collection of Epiphanies. And maybe these are epiphanies about Christ or about life or spiritual practice, whatever new dawnings of understanding that have deeply impacted our own lives. And we'll be sharing these stories during these weeks leading up to Lent. Epiphany comes before Lent. And I'd like to share with you the epiphany that I have had personally about nonviolence. This is not a sudden lightning bolt of an epiphany for me. It's more of a gradual, slow dawning. Because nonviolence is not an easy thing to wake up to in this world, steeped as we are in violence of every imaginable form. We are made to believe, brainwashed really, from an early age, that violence is normal and to be expected. Violence is how power plays out and how hierarchy is enforced. Violence is how law and order are established and governments defended. Violence is baked into human culture and not just Western industrialized culture, world culture at large. It is so ubiquitous that we don't even notice it. Now, I've been commenting, I find it very, very interesting that I've been planning to preach this sermon for about a month, and then just in the past week, we found ourselves on the brink of a new war in the Middle East, with a Middle Eastern country. So, U.S. government assassinated one of Iran's top military officials, and Iran retaliates with some bombs, and now, now here we all are all on the edges of our seats wondering what new hell will be visited upon us next. So while my head has been in the radical nonviolence and nonviolent resistance of Christ, our government has been doing war in the name of self-defense, which is the status quo around here. My country has been at war my whole life. In my early childhood, The Cold War was happening with Russia. That was not an official war, but it was definitely a war behind the scenes. Then I was about eight when the Gulf War began, and then I was just coming of age when the so-called War on Terror began after 9-11. And then there was the Iraq War that began a couple years after that. And so, like many of you, I'm not surprised by our nation's warring tendencies or its imperialist and defensive agendas, you know, protecting our oil access and so forth. So war and violence and aggression and retribution and bombs, tanks, guns, these are par for the course. They are the best of my whole life, the news on the TV, to movies I've seen, to books I've read, to my lived reality. Pretty much everything that's here is here because somebody went to war over it. So why would we even question this norm? Then there are, of course, less obvious forms of violence that surround us. So 
at one time or another. We're probably all guilty of some, some form of verbal violence in our relationships or in our parenting and so forth. And then, you know, what about the violence in, inherent in our agricultural system? The violence of our criminal justice system, the violence inherent in white supremacy, which if we're white people, we've been trained not to see. And what about America's history, violent history of slavery and genocide and erasure? These all form the backdrop of modern life. Even our own faith tradition has been complicit with and practiced violence throughout its history. Christians have participated in crusades against Muslims, Jews, and people of other faiths. The Spanish Inquisition sanctioned colonial violence and genocide of indigenous peoples. Christians have participated in lynchings. Christians have separated indigenous American babies from their biological families in order to erase their culture. People who call themselves Christians violently tear apart migrant families seeking asylum at our border. Christians advocate for the death penalty, despite the fact that our Savior himself was subjected to the death penalty and shamed it. Christianity has a long history of violence. This, despite the nonviolent example of the one we claim as king, despite our obsession with scripture worship, we collectively, consistently ignore the words of Christ in the Beatitudes and virtually every Advent passage we heard last month, every signpost pointing to the peaceable kingdom. And speaking of Advent passages, I'd like to read you a little bit of another one here just to soak us in extra scripture today to remind us of what those Advent passages said. Um, this is one that, per- that in particular has helped catalyze my own dawning understanding of Christian nonviolence, and it is the canticle of Zechariah in Luke 1. I'm going to read a bit of it here. Praise be to the Lord. The God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness righteousness before him all all our days. And you, my child, will be called, he's speaking to John, his son, John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And here's the kicker. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, the day star, will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This idea of the path of peace is written on my heart. If you follow my writing, you'll notice that I refer to them constantly, including in today's litany, the way of peace or the path of peace. And this is my epiphany, that Christ is deeply and profoundly nonviolent. Christ came to exemplify a nonviolent God, and our path as Christ followers is nonviolence, also known as the path of peace, to which Zechariah refers. 
So if we read Christ's words regarding conflict in the Beatitudes, words like, turn the other cheek. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Words like, if someone takes your cloak, give them your shirt also. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some people interpret that word meekness to mean creative nonviolence, and I really like that definition of creative nonviolence. Jesus demonstrates this unheard of creative nonviolence with this way of sidestepping ego and the need to be right and the need to be well regarded and somehow gaining a greater victory by way of meekness and poverty and humility. And the other kicker, the one we, have, we all have a lot of trouble swallow, swallowing, that is love your enemies. This is also in the Beatitudes. It's right here. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That is a radical teaching. And the crazy part is that the Christ himself lives out his words. He loves his enemies. He forgives them. He accepts death by violence. He could have fought back or run or talked him out of it. But instead, he submits to violence and then gloriously shames it in his resurrection. Violence never has the last word. In some ways, we can't even see violence until Christ shows us an alternative. And some of us never understand the violence of the violence of the nonviolence of Christ. Pardon me. There are people today still protect, portraying the Christ as a macho, toxic, masculine warmonger, and this is because we have no collective understanding. We've had no collective epiphany of the deeply nonviolent way of Christ and the path of peace that stands in stark contrast to the violent society that we're all raised in. And this is why Zechariah's words are so compelling to me. The tender compassion of God, that's another translation, will guide our feet into the way of peace. They offer up such a different vision of God and the work of God to a violence-soaked world. So what can we do? We live here now in this violent culture. We're complicit right and left in violence. We, many of us, suffer our own trauma and wounding from the violence done to us by family, friends, or culture. So how do we personally, individually, and collectively train ourselves to a new way? How can we here do our inner work so that we no longer perceive violence as normal, but as the actual aberrance that it is? And how can we embrace practices that foster this creative nonviolence in the world? These are beautiful questions, I think. And I would like to offer us two pathways into this work of nonviolence. They're very simple. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a start. It's where my head has been lately. And these two pathways are curiosity 
and contemplation. So, curiosity first. The scripture says in Acts 10, which is also a part of our lectionary today, that Christ went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Okay? He went, out, he went about doing good. So whenever anyone tried to bait him to violence, which they did many times, he always brilliantly sidesteps it, showing whoever was paying attention that there's always another path. There's always an alternative to violence. This is the guy who, when he's asked to enforce a penalty of stoning for an alleged adulteress, he squats down and scribbles in the dust. Let whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Who wants to go first? Sometimes that alternative begins with curiosity and asking more questions as Christ is apt to do in scripture, to answer a question with more questions. The poet David White calls this the art of asking the beautiful question. He says, the ability to ask beautiful questions, often in very unbeautiful moments, is one of the great disciplines of a human life. And a beautiful question starts to shape your identity as much by asking it as it does by having it answered. Jesus asks beautiful questions. Here are a few. What, what do you think? Who do you say I am? Why are you so afraid? Why did you doubt? Do you want to be healed? My personal favorite is, why are you bothering this woman? Jesus always expresses interest in the motives and thoughts, the unmet needs behind whatever nonsense people are doing. Here's a thing. Curiosity crowds out judgment. Judgment says, I'm right, you're wrong, and that leads to violence. But curiosity takes up the space. It asks questions rather than makes statements. And this is a powerful resistance if we can internalize it and practice it. So this is a message of Christ to us. To use, to learn to use the powers of curiosity and empathy to diffuse violence. It's interesting. Do you know how many questions Jesus asks in the four Gospels? I looked it up on the internet, and the internet told me. I did not go in and count them all myself. The internet told me it was 307. Do you know how many he was asked? 183. And guess how many he actually answered? Three. <laughs> To me, this implies that the questions and the practice of answering them, of asking them, pardon me, are more important than the answers. The questions are part of the path. I believe that curiosity was a major tool in Christ's nonviolent toolkit, and it can be so in ours. Okay, contemplation. St. Gregory the Great referred to contemplation as resting in God. Very simply, resting in God. To become truly nonviolent, I believe we must become contemplative rather than reactive. Instead of clenched fists, grabbing or punching or forcing, we allow. 
with, op- with the open hand of contemplation. And this means being with what is. This involves sitting with our fear and acknowledging it and giving it voice because so often fear is what gives rise to violence, isn't it? Fear and impatience, I think. It involves getting quiet, getting the ego quiet so that we can hear the soul. And I believe that the soul is always inclined toward peace. The soul has nothing to prove, nothing to defend, no axes to grind. The soul, there hidden with Christ in God, can observe impartially. The ego is what whispers to us that we don't have enough, we need more, we need to prove our strength or our worth. The ego fears death. The ego needs validation and to stick it to other people. All vengeance stems from the ego. That's why vengeance is better left to God who dwells in spirit and not in ego and whose justice doesn't take on the trappings of human ego. I would argue that we have to become contemplative if we are to have any hope of following Christ's instruction to love our enemies and do good to them. Can we agree that bombing our enemies doesn't count as loving or doing good to them? We need a new mind about this. We need the mind. And a way to get a new mind is by contemplation. Contemplation ushers us to an understanding of our oneness with our enemies. Howard Thurman says, he says, you must seek, quote, this is in your guide, ways by which you can have the experience of a common sharing of mutual worth and value. It may be hazardous, but you must do it. It certainly was hazardous to Christ. His refusal to perpetuate violence ultimately got him crucified. And the path of peace is a potentially hazardous path. Getting a new mind will be hazardous to the old mind. Moving from a retributive mind to one that's concerned with mutual worth and value will be a new paradigm. It will be uncomfortable at first. But if we value Christ's story, if we get this dawning understanding of the nonviolent, ultimately loving, ultimately victorious Christness of Christ. This is the path I believe we're asked to follow. And contemplation can help get us on the path. It trains us to the soul. It helps us learn to recognize the ego so that we can avoid getting in our own smaller wars. Contemplation reshapes our inner landscape so that peace can inhabit us and exude from us. We need to embrace contemplation as a pathway in to nonviolence. So I believe that these two, that curiosity and contemplation, can get us started on a pathway out of our habits of violence. I believe that they are in some ways like a lever and a fulcrum. They are like simple spiritual machines that can get us unstuck out of the path of retributive violence and into the path of peace. We learn to ask questions before we judge. We learn to pause and reflect before speaking violent words. We learn to consider what's behind the scenes and how we might contribute to peace. We learn 
about where we're spending our money and how we're spending our time and what we are supporting with our votes and our dollars. And together, curiosity and contemplation give us space to consider whether our response to whatever is before us belongs within the peaceable kingdom. We learn to allow nonviolence to extend into every aspect of our lives, every relationship, every purchase, every interaction, every word. And I want us here at Peace of Christ to have the epiphany, the epiphany of, non, of the nonviolence of Christ. I want us to so deeply understand it that we naturally extend that nonviolence into every part of our lives. I want Christian nonviolence to be our new normal here. For the basic expectation to be that we will practice nonviolence and we will consider every action in light of it. I believe that nonviolence is a star that must dawn in our hearts if we are to understand Christ's message at all and be part of his legacy on the earth. For this epiphany, we pray to the Lord. Amen.